I invite you, if you have your Bibles today, to turn to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. This will be our last Sunday of uh, summer in the Psalms. We are one-fifth of the way through (laughs) the Psalter. Uh, Three summers down, only 12 summers to go. (laughs) Judah, I think that you might be uh, finishing up undergraduate school by the time your dad gets through summer in the Psalms. But I'd say that we all say together when that happens, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. However steady and slow it might be, I hope you found our continuing study in the Psalms of encouragement to you, enjoyment, um, uplifting your spirit, and guiding you each day. I believe today's Psalm will be no exception. It's certainly been an encouragement to my own soul as I've prepared this week. So if by now you've found Psalm chapter 30, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would turn our silence into songs. Lord, that you would turn our sackcloth into clothes of gladness and our mourning into dancing. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We pray that we would exalt your holy name today. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would go forth by the power of your spirit and move in the hearts of everyone here today within the sound of my voice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I hope you noticed as we were reading Psalm chapter 30, uh, the, the opposites or the contrasts the reversals of fortune in this psalm. We went from in the deep to being lifted up, from certain death in the grave to life in the land of the living, from anger to favor, weeping to joy, pride to dismay, mourning to dancing, sackcloth to gladness, and silence to song. 
At the dedication of the temple, God's people were being reminded that the God of David is the God who reverses fortunes for the benefit of his people and the praise of his own glory. I want to say that again because I think that is the main point of this psalm. While the temple was being dedicated, God's people were being reminded that the God of David is the God who reverses fortunes for the benefit of his people and all to the praise of God's glory. To put it more succinctly, God's grace changes everything. God's grace changes everything. Now, before we dive into this psalm itself, some of you more astute Bible students are probably aware there is a good bit of discussion about the title. Like, we don't even get to start in verse 1 today. We start considering this title. The question is really centered around the fact that the title in Hebrew is a song at the dedication of the house, the bayit. Okay, so what house? Is it David's personal abode? Is it Solomon's temple? Was it the tabernacle, which was at times referred to as the house of God? Or could it perhaps, as some scholars think, uh, have been used as a song that David had written that was repurposed and used at the dedication of the second temple? So the question remains, which house is in view? Now, I will say that I don't think knowing the exact details of the specific circumstances are needed to understand the theme of the psalm. That's what I already have kind of laid out before you. But I do think that the sinful numbering of the people in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 could be the background or the occasion of this psalm. And much like David then prepared the materials for the building of Solomon's temple— David could have written this psalm, this song, for the dedication of the temple in advance. That is a possibility. So I will be attempting to, at every point in the outline, give you my understanding why I personally hold that this is a song for the dedication of Solomon's temple. And I hope that that will become more apparent as we study through the psalm today. So let's look now to verses 1 through 3 where we see that God's grace changes certain death to life. God's grace changes certain death to life. David begins by saying, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. Now, right away, I think that is one of the hints that helps point us to the background of this psalm and the pestilence that followed David's sinful numbering and census of the people. Perhaps you will recall that in God's displeasure with David's prideful numbering of the Israelites, he spoke to David's seer, Gad. This is, I'm kind of summarizing 1 Chronicles 21. And he told Gad to offer David three options, three choices of punishment. It would either be three years of famine or three months of devastation by his foes while the sword of the enemies was overtaking him or three days of the sword of the Lord, which would mean pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord himself doing the destroying. David's response in 1 Chronicles twenty-one thirteen was, I am in great distress. I think I would have been too. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. That's his reason for choosing the Lord's sword. 
He says, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. He doesn't want the famine, but he definitely does not want the three months of his enemies coming and overtaking him. He says, the Lord's mercy is great. So I will fall on his mercy and receive that punishment. And so when David says, you've drawn me up and you have not let my foes rejoice over me, there, there you see a potential tie-in to the background for a psalm like this. Then he acknowledges in verses 2 and 3 that the Lord has brought him up from the realm of the dead, Sheol, and he's restored him to life from among those who go down to the grave. In other words, death is all around him. And he himself is at risk of being swept away, so to speak, in this flood of death. And he praises God that when he cried for help, he was healed. Now, there is no indication that David himself was struck by the pestilence. But as is often the case, our own grief and our sorrow can be as sickening or worse when we are watching over those we love as they suffer. Like Christina and I were talking to some other parents recently about how hard it is to watch your child suffer through something. And it could be a sickening experience to watch this happen. And so David knows his own responsibility and his inner pain for this sword of the Lord sweeping through the land must have been unimaginable as he realized that the death and suffering taking place he was responsible for as Israel's king. In the end, David's life was spared and he was drawn up from certain death like a bucket of water is drawn up from a deep well. That's the picture in verse 1. You've drawn me up. It's like going deep into a well and pulling up a bucket of water. David is rescued from what would have been certain death and brought up and restored to life. It's almost like a resurrection. But a little more on that later. Secondly, in verses 4 through 5, the psalm takes a new turn. And in these two verses, verses 4 and 5, we come to understand that God's grace changes weeping to joyful testimony. God's grace changes weeping to joyful testimony. David says in verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Again, you could perhaps see right away how verse 5 could correspond to David's view of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 21, where he knows his mercy is very great, like his anger is momentary compared to the mercy and grace of God for my lifetime. The mercy and grace God had uh, given to David that David had experienced could cause him to stand up before the congregation and encourage others to sing praises to the Lord. Our weeping may tarry for a night, but rejoicing comes with the dawn of a new morning. Members of Leonardtown Baptist Church, we can all learn from King David here how important it is, even better perhaps the responsibility that we have to tell others of our own personal experiences of the grace of God and the far surpassing nature of his grace over his brief discipline for our sin or perhaps our momentary suffering we experience 
as a part of this fallen world. Now, I precisely worded that last sentence for a reason, because I want to just back out of Psalm 30 for a moment and acknowledge that Jesus taught in John's gospel, the ninth chapter, that not all suffering is the result of sin. The man born blind, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents. It was to the glory of God. And so I want to say that it could be that the suffering you're experiencing is not a result of sin. In this case, it was. And David knew it was. He knew it was the disciplining hand of God. But nevertheless, in either case, whether suffering is as a result of the consequence of sin or as the result of being born into a fallen world and its effects and impacts of the original sin, to which Brother Art mentioned in Romans 5.12, the anger of the Lord, as it's put here in Psalm 30, is momentary when you compare it to his grace and his favor. Perhaps the reason more of us do not testify in this way, that we don't encourage others to sing and think of God's grace this way, is because we have a skewed perspective on the matter. The reformer John Calvin put it very eloquently when he wrote it like this. When we're prosperous, we devour God's blessings without ever acknowledging that they even came from him. Or perhaps in spiritual laziness, we allow them to slip right through our hands. But if anything sorrowful or anything adverse happens to us, we immediately complain to God about how severe it is, as if he had never been kind to us and never dealt mercifully with us in the past. In short, our own fretfulness and our own impatience under affliction turns every minute of suffering into what feels like a lifetime. While on the other hand, our discontentment and our ingratitude lead us to imagine that God's favor, however long it's being exercised towards us, seems momentary. It's our own perversity, our own sin, therefore, in reality, that hinders us from perceiving correctly that God's anger is but for a short duration, while his favor is continued toward us during the whole course of our lives. We have a skewed perspective sometimes. We tend to complain at the least bit of severe pressure and neglect when God is so good to us. I pray that we never undervalue as a congregation the grace of God in our lives. I'm so grateful we sang and magnified the grace of Jesus today. What a perfect song for this sermon. See, Jesus Christ demonstrated to us the riches of God's grace in the shedding of his blood for our own sins. Brother Art, you said, uh, I'm here by accident today. No, I don't think you were. God had you here for a purpose, and your testimony was the grace of God in your life, giving praise to him for the blood of Jesus Christ that we all magnify. And we praise God's grace even for the sin of failing to rightly perceive, failing to rightly grasp the extent of God's blessing and favor in our lives compared with his momentary discipline or our suffering. All of this, this perspective, changes the minute we go from thinking of this lifetime to having an eternal perspective, doesn't it? That, that's a key to this whole situation. 
that his grace is even life-giving is one of the footnotes here in verse 5. God's grace changes everything. But more on that perspective, the eternal perspective, later. Number three, I want you to see in your outlines that God's grace changes pride into pleas for mercy. We can see this if we look through verses 6 through 10 and come to understand that David's pride was changed, transformed into pleas for God's mercy. David begins in verse 6 by explaining how the prosperity that he had experienced. He, he does, says that all of this is owing to the Lord. It turned into a source of self-confidence for him. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity... I shall never be moved. And he acknowledges in a moment that it all came from the Lord. But this self-confidence is beginning to sound like the wicked. Sound a whole lot like the words of the arrogant man in Psalm chapter 10 and verse 6. The psalmist says in chapter 10 and verse 6, I shall never be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And what David is saying is he's starting to rely on his own confidence. He says, I am so secure that I won't be shaken. I'm just going to put it out there that in America in general, and in our area here in Southern Maryland in particular, a sense of false security in prosperity is a real challenge to us. A sense of false security in our prosperity is a challenge. The temptation of material prosperity is a temptation to disregard God and believe you don't need him and he isn't the one that got you to where you are. Now, we may not count our armies up like King David did, but we might count up our dollars and feel pretty safe and secure from all alarms in the arms of our 401k instead of safe and secure from all alarms leaning on the everlasting arms. So David sounds a lot like the wicked man in Psalm 10, 6. But this is God's grace, see? The grace of God even occurs in the hiding of his face from David. God is bringing David to his senses. He brings David to an understanding that his mountain was made firm by God's hand and not his own strength. And the dismay over the loss of communion with God drives David to a place where he cries out to God for mercy. Again, one commentator says, a marvelous and incredible method, surely, that God, by hiding his face, by hiding his face, and as it were, bringing on darkness, would open the eyes of his servants, who saw nothing in the broad light of prosperity. He couldn't see it when everything was lit by the prosperity he had. And so God's grace hides his face and brings a little darkness. Thus, it was necessary that oftentimes even we must be violently shaken in order to drive away the delusions which both stifle our faith and hinder our prayers and which often stupefy us with soothing infatuation. If David had the need of this kind of fix to be jolted into seeing where his help came from. Let us not presume that we are in such a good state of heart that it would render it to us unprofitable 
for us to be in need, for us to be shaken into a place of want, in order for us to remove carnal self-confidence, which is, as it were, a diseased excess that would otherwise suffocate us. Christians, I ask, do you ever perceive the grace of God even when he disciplines us? That's hard. But we are encouraged today by Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The fruitful effect of God hiding his face from David is that David turned to the Lord. Did you see that in verses 8? In verse 10, all of the direct addresses now to God, he goes from saying, I was doing okay, to saying, to the Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. Hear, O Lord, be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. By grace, God turns David's pride into pleas for mercy. As so often it does, grace humbles us. And the mercy of God banishes pride. But more on that a little later. Number four, God's grace changes mourning to dancing. I know you have a lot of blanks, so I'll go slowly. Sackcloth to gladness and silence to song. God's grace changes mourning to dancing, sackcloth to gladness, and silence to song. The list of what God's grace changes continues to rapidly expand in the last two verses of Psalm 30. David commemorates his own deliverance, and he vows eternal praise to God for all that he has done. Again, I would contend that that fits perfectly with the kind of mindset David would have wanted the people of Israel to have had at the dedication of the temple. For them to think how merciful God had been to King David numerous times over the course of David's life, that God had demonstrated his covenant love and unfailing mercy to David despite of David's own sinful unworthiness. God had shown mercy time and time again. It was because David had continually thrown himself upon the mercy of God that his fortunes were reversed. God worked everything for David's good and for his own glory when David would surrender himself to the mercy of God. And this is the lesson for the people of God when they would consider the place where God's merciful presence would dwell amongst them in the Old Covenant. Of course, we know from Scripture that the temple was the place of the Holy of Holies and the place of the mercy seat, animal sacrifices, and all of what the house of God represented. It pointed us to Jesus. All right, so here's where I hope to be faithful to your prayer through song this morning. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Okay, so if... This dedication of the temple, David is reminding God's people, God's merciful, keep coming to him. 
Don't, don't fall into the hands of men. Don't, don't go this way. When you sin, just throw yourself to God and his mercy housed in this temple, which points us, because of our greater revelation of scripture, to Christ and the sacrifices and the mercy seat and all that's taking place. So at the outset of our study this summer, I said I wanted us to understand the Psalms in their context. And I've tried my best to give you some uh, grounding in the Old Testament context of where I think this Psalm came from. But more importantly, we want to understand the Psalms the way Jesus did. Jesus said all of the law and the prophets and the writings, including the Psalms, spoke of me. That's what he said in Luke chapter 24. So let us consider for just a few moments how in Christ, God's grace changes everything. How in Christ, God's grace changes everything. And when I was working on my whiteboard in my study, I had kind of got my points over here on the left. And then what I did is I just drew some of your spreadsheet people. So I did another column and I just put in Christ. And I was like, well, all four of those apply. So we're just going to go back through the points today of how this psalm talks about God's grace and how it changes things and say that in Christ, God's grace changes everything in exactly the same ways. You see, the grace of God in Christ changes certain death to life, doesn't it? The grace of God changes certain death to life. This is the resurrection theme that I was alluding to earlier. And it is in no way a stretch to say this psalm is about the resurrection. How can I say that? We know from Peter's interpretation at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 of Psalm 16, and the similarities that you can find between Psalm 16 and 30, that being restored from going down to the pit, being kept from corruption, and all of that, is pointing ultimately to Christ and not King David, right? Because Peter says about David, you know, he's dead. (laughs) He says in Acts 2.29, Brothers, I can tell you with confidence the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is right there. It's still with us. He did see corruption. Of course, he will be resurrected, but that wasn't ultimately about David. It was ultimately about Jesus Christ. David's in the grave. Jesus was drawn up from the grave. Jesus was brought up on the third day. So we can say, first of all, the grace of God in Christ changes death to life. In Adam we die, in Christ all are made alive. But then secondly, we said that in this psalm, we saw God's grace changes weeping into joyful testimony. And once again, the resurrection of Jesus, it brought the very same outcome, did it not? Mary Magdalene and the others were weeping over Christ's dead body. As he was laid in the borrowed tomb of Joseph, We know that sorrow remained for Friday and Saturday night. But as the song says, then came the morning that sealed the promise. And his buried body began to breathe. And Jesus said to Mary Magdalene in John's gospel, as it's recorded for us, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, she thought he was the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them by name. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. He turned the weeping into a joyful testimony. I've seen him. And then the disciples went and told a joyful testimony turning the darkest day of history into a time of rejoicing and testimony of the grace of God. Oh, how the grace of God turned that weeping to testimony. Then furthermore, as we consider Christ's fulfillment of the psalm, we know that in Christ, God's grace changes people who are proud into people who humbly plead for mercy and praise God for his mercy. This made me think of Romans chapter 12. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, when you have come to understand the free and sovereign grace of God, expounded in 11 chapters of the epistle of Romans, it transforms you. Your pride is decimated. And the view of God's mercy you are transformed. That's what Paul continues to say. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You begin to do God's will when God's mercy and grace changes you. And do you know one thing that is good and acceptable and perfect that's always in God's will? Humility. Paul continues In view of the mercy of God, be transformed for, so there's an argument being based on what he's already said in view of God's mercy, by the grace, catching on to the themes and the connections, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, grace had totally wrecked Paul's pride. And it wrecks our pride too. We become humble, knowing that were it not for God's mercy, we would all be destined for judgment and his wrath. It makes you, that is the mercy of God, loving toward people who seem unlovable. The mercy of God and God's grace makes you less haughty, Willing to associate with people you think might be lowly. It makes you compassionate for people's challenges. And it helps you overcome evil without becoming vengeful. For greater commentary, read Romans chapter 12. This is what the mercy and grace of God does in God's people. Now, if I could add one more little point in this section It's a place you know I could go when we talk about the grace of God and the decimation of our pride, but I'm going to go there anyway because it's worth rehearsing. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your undoing. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that what? No one can boast. Nobody gets to boast. Why can't we ever earn God's favor? Because if we could take it to the bank, we would boast about it. 
(laughs) We would rub it in other people's faces. We would glorify ourselves, our own willpower, our own ingenuity, and we'd neglect to praise God. But notice when God's grace enters an equation, nobody gets to boast. He gets the glory, and what do we receive? Mercy, life, love, joy. That's what the grace of God does. It changes our pride into humble faith in the mercy found only in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we considered in this psalm how the grace of God changes our mourning into dancing, our sackcloth into clothes of gladness, and our silence to a song. Friends, that is, or should be, the everyday life of believers in Jesus Christ. That is our story because it was his story. Jesus himself secured for us the great reversal of fortune that the grace of God affords us. He did it through his shed blood. I want you to look back to Psalm 30. And if you have the English Standard Version, look carefully at the footnotes on verse 9. I wished the CSB had put a footnote on the word death as well. If you take both footnotes of the English Standard Version, it would read like this. And similarly, in the NASB and NKJV, which are more word for word, what profit is there in my blood if I go down to corruption? The psalmist asks, more literally, what profit is there in my blood if I go down to corruption? Now, we're going to do a little tying together of the Bible again. Because we've already acknowledged Peter looked to Psalm 16, verse 10. If you want to turn there, you can, or just make a note of it and look later. Where David asks, or says, you will not let your Holy One see, same Hebrew word, corruption, decay. In other words, what Peter interprets for us from a New Testament perspective is that that was about Jesus, that he wouldn't let his Messiah see corruption in the grave, that he would raise him from the dead. That was prophesied in the psalm, and David was a prophet. That's exactly what Peter is saying. And this same word is used in Psalm 30, verse 9, when the psalmist writes, what profit is there in my blood if I go to corruption? If you leave me in the grave, there's no profit in my blood. In other words, the anointed one asks the question, what profit will there be in the blood of the anointed one if I suffer corruption in the grave? So friends, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no profit in his blood. The resurrection vindicated the holy life of Jesus Christ. It proved he was who he said he was. And Paul says it like this in Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You have to have both because Jesus is a holy and sinless Savior. His blood is infinitely pure and righteous and holy. And God said so when he raised him from the dead. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, it changes our perspective on everything. The grace of God in Christ changes our outlook on life. We can now say that in the resurrection of Jesus, all those who belong to him also have the same hope of a resurrected body. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it's not just the creation that groans 
We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. It's the hope of the resurrection. Like without the resurrection, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you can't add eternity to the momentary trials and sufferings of this life, it stinks. But if you have the hope of the resurrection in Christ, I can't go that far. There's eternity on the other side of this life. And it changes your perspective. That perspective can change mourning into dancing. That perspective, the eternal perspective, can change sackcloth into gladness. And that kind of resurrection hope turns silent tongues into singing saints. I want to close by reading 2 Corinthians 4 at length, because I think if you've been tracking with me, and I pray you have, you will see all the threads woven in this chapter. Beginning in verse 8, I will read 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace, so that as grace, hear it, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you catch the opposites, the contrasts, the grace, the mercy, the praise to the glory of God, and the perspective of momentary versus eternal? It's all there. So friends, I ask you today, whether you're an unbeliever here today, I want to ask, has God's Holy Spirit given you eyes to see the eternal riches of his grace in Jesus Christ and his shed blood? Or are your eyes still focused, as it were, on a fat bank account and the temporary prosperity of this life with an easy retirement? Perhaps that's not you. Perhaps your eyes are more focused on the sore and present affliction of health distress you are taking. Or 
a challenge in your family, a family crisis. Oh, dear friends, none of us are exempt from those kinds of challenges in life, but those things will not last forever. The grace of God found in the shed blood of Christ gives eternal life and everlasting joy. So I beg you today, I beg you to treasure the riches of God's grace today, even if, for a time, we hold it in these jars of clay. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bless you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Father, even now, as your children, we receive an inheritance that is incorruptible. The stock market could tank tomorrow. This world could experience strife to a level none of us have ever experienced. But God, the riches of your grace in Christ are imperishable, incorruptible. So let us store up for ourselves, as you taught us, treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Father, teach our hearts, instruct my heart. Lord, help us to understand You have made our mountains strong. Lord, we don't want the darkness to come and the hiding of your face to be what needs to jolt us into falling upon your mercy. God, may we fall upon your mercy every day, found by reading your word, understanding who you are, being grounded in grace every day, transformed, renewing our minds. Living sacrifices have a tendency to hop off the altar. God, get us back on the altar. Help us to live sacrificially in spiritual worship in view of the mercy and grace you've given us. Decimate our pride. Father, I pray that you would banish pride from our church. Start with me, Lord. Help none of us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Help us to all have sober judgment, each according to the faith you've given. Father, I pray that your grace would continue to transform each one of our lives. And I pray that it would pour in and overwhelm and reach even the lost who are here today. That they would see and savor Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for their sins. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had to study it today. We pray that you would plant it deep in us and bear fruit from it. In Christ's name, amen.